One way or another, biofuel will be part of the country's energy future, especially to power ships and airplanes. That's why the Energy Department's ARPA-E is spending some $35 million in grants to improve the efficiency of making this class of fuel. For details, the EcoSyn Bio Program Director, David Babson. Mr. Babson, good to have you on. Good to be here. Let's begin with what you mean by EcoSyn Bio, the name of the program. Well, the SynBio piece refers to the type of techniques that are going to be used to engineer microorganisms to make the fuels more efficiently. Specifically, they're going to use synthetic biology to engineer kind of novel pathways and systems to synthesize fuels in a more resource-efficient manner. And is the energy input into making these types of fuels less than the energy that you get from the resulting fuel? Because that wouldn't seem to be a great prospect otherwise. You're right, actually. So the energy that you get in the product is kind of the concentrated form of the energy that was in the biomass. But it is kind of a unique process because what we're looking to do with EcoSymbio is optimize carbon efficiency relative to energy efficiency. And the reason is, is because in the future, the cost of wasting carbon is going to be greater than the price of avoiding it. And that is to say, as we deploy more wind and more solar, Both the cost and the carbon intensity of power is going down, and we need to develop the tools to actually leverage that low-cost, low-carbon power to increase carbon efficiency in products. And that's what EcoSynBio does, is to develop those new types of technologies. And in the final form of this fuel, when the Energy Department and ARPA-E mentions aviation, that's kerosene. Is that what the resulting fuel coming out of this whole process will be? In some of the cases, absolutely. So while the program really seeks to make the synthesis process carbon efficient, it really opens up the possibilities for synthesizing a number of different types of energy-dense fuels and chemicals, including kerosene types of fuels that could be used in aviation. All right. So tell us about the grant program. This is to do precisely what? Let's start with what it is you're asking organizations to come up with if they were to receive a grant. So in this particular solicitation, what we were asking organizations to do is to develop carbon-optimized biosynthesis pathways that could accommodate external energy. And because, like as I was saying earlier, as we deploy more wind and solar, there's an opportunity to use that low-cost, low-carbon power to drive greater resource efficiency. So we wanted to engineer systems that would allow us to use traditional biomass feedstocks that is used to produce first-generation biofuels, but use additional energy inputs to make sure that that resource is more efficiently synthesized into products. So we were eliciting ideas from universities, startups, and other types of entities that could apply for this to come up with strategies to synthesize fuels and chemicals with 100% carbon efficiency. So that was the ask, and we got a lot of different proposals. And the final program suite includes both universities and biotech startups and and biotech companies to uh, develop these uh, technologies that we were eliciting. We're speaking with David Babson. He's the Ecosyn Bio Program Director at the Department of Energy's ARPA-E. And what is the status now? The grants are out, and what is the output that you're expecting at some point down the line? So we've made the announcements uh, to the teams that are being awarded. We are negotiating the final awards, and we're planning to kick off the program in September. Ultimately, what we'd like to see within three years are end-to-end pathways that are capable of taking 
biomass resources and biogenic CO2 and converting them to fuels and chemicals and products with 100% carbon efficiency by leveraging low-cost, low-carbon power. And once the demonstrations are shown to be successful, what will happen? Will they be patented and then the patents will be available for licensing? In other words, what's the ultimate tech transfer plan here for once these carbon-neutral technologies get worked out? It really depends on the various teams. We actually have some teams that are going to be developing a kind of component technologies, you know, unique synthetic pathways and other types of biocatalytic platforms. Those things could be patented and sold and, you know, licensed in different ways. And then we also have teams that have full end-to-end processes that could be commercialized at the end, you know, where they could seek financing to build a new biorefinery you know, that is built on those technologies. So it's really a number of different tech-to-market strategies depending on the specific proposal and team. And the main oil and energy producers that you commonly think of that also sell their refined fuel to shippers and ship operators and airlines and you name it, don't they have the facilities to pursue this kind of thing on their own? Or is this something that they just figure, let's let the scientists figure it out first? Well, it's really a supply chain challenge. There's kind of two types of fuels and chemicals industries. The the bioeconomy, which is essentially a $16 billion corn ethanol industry, has, you know, the supply chains coming from that corn feedstock, whereas the oil refiners have petroleum. So they're kind of parallel in that they, yeah, they both produce fuels and chemicals, but because the feedstocks are different, the types of technologies that are typically applied to produce product are different. And so there is interest among traditional oil refiners to look at new ways of producing fuels and chemicals. But for now, these technologies are pretty high risk. And that's why RPE is investing in them to, you know, kind of take down some of the barriers so that they will be attractive to well-financed entities to pick them up and deploy them. Sure. And just to be clear, the feedstock for the types of processes you're looking at with this program are not corn, but other types of biomass? Not necessarily corn. It could include other types of biomass, but we're not limiting the use of corn as a feedstock because the actual technologies that we want to come out of this program focus on the biochemical mechanisms by which the feedstock is converted. And so we're almost agnostic as to where the starch or sugar or CO2 input comes from in developing those technologies. Right. So in other words, the process is further upstream than the feedstock, and the feedstock will produce what it produces depending on what it is that is uh, refined into, into the final fuel. That's right. The refining process can accommodate any number of different feedstocks. All right. And just briefly, what does this refining process tend to look like? It tends to look like a fermentation, like the traditional, you know, people are familiar with the production of ethanol for beer and wine. That evolved natural pathway is what we are using as a starting point. And then we are using synthetic biology to engineer the microorganisms that carry out those processes to allow them to be more carbon efficient and to produce more products from less input. All right. And uh, what's the timeline here? You said the program will launch in September. Is it going to take a year, do you think, or six months to come up with some processes? There are 
two sets of projects in in the program. Some are 24 months and some are 36 months. So within two to three years, we're anticipating some different types of product outputs, whether those are individual component technologies that are licensed or end-to-end processes. The timeline is, is short and very ambitious. So we're expecting to see things within uh, three years. David Babson is EcoSyn Bio Program Director at the Department of Energy, specifically the ARPA-E office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview, plus a link to the funding opportunity, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. 
And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when 
uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Winter season is here, and Discount Tire wants you to stay safe on the road. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. Let's get you taken care of.